I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to the 53rd part of my sermon series on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that we must continually preach and hear about repentance and actually repent, because it is so easy for us to become defensive about the evil that we may do and to decide to call that which is wrong right. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. morning on this uh, fifth day of the month of December. Uh, four more weeks, to, four more Sundays to go, and it will be next year. So we're coming down to the finish line. And it's a beautiful day here in Lansing, Michigan. Now, we don't really have any snow, although some places in the country are covered, but uh, somehow Michigan managed to miss snow, and we are thankful here for that. Our lesson for this morning is the uh, 53rd part of our biblical sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text for this morning is in the fifth verse of the 11th chapter of of 2 Samuel. And the Bible says this, And the woman Bathsheba conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say, and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for listening to this message today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds, so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, as we have been examining in our past few lessons, God has appointed David as the king of Israel as a replacement for the disobedient King Saul. In our last lesson, we recorded David's defeat of the Philistines and his restoral of the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle, which at this time is in David's capital of Jerusalem, the city that David acquired when he defeated the Jebusites. And once the celebration of the restoral of the Ark was completed, David built a palace for himself. And as he was completing his palace, David decided 
that the mobile tabernacle was no longer good enough for the worship of God. David wanted the articles of worship, those being the Ark of the Covenant that contained the tablets upon which God wrote the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded before the Pharaoh, and a pot of manna gathered from the wilderness, covered by the mercy seat with the two gold cherubim, as well as the golden lampstand, the breastplate of judgment, the altar of incense, the bronze laver for washing, the golden table and utensils to prepare sacrifices, and the veil that stood before the most holy place to have a permanent home. But God disagreed. As God told, as God told Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 through 7, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God did not want David to build a temple. Nonetheless, God did tell David that there would be a temple built, and that he, David, would have a great deal to do with it. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16 records that God said, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So God assured David that the fate of Saul would not befall him, that he would not be rejected and then be replaced. Of course, it is important for us to realize that God's assurance of his grace to David was contingent upon David maintaining his relationship with God, which is not specified in the scripture, but which goes without saying. Now, we didn't cover this as part of our lessons on the life of Saul, but Saul's final downfall came when Saul commanded the medium at Endor to call up Samuel from the dead, the doing of which was witchcraft. Now Saul did his job as the God-appointed king to remote, remove those that practiced witchcraft from the land, but after Samuel's death, Saul decided to use witchcraft to consult with his dead counselor. But consultation with Samuel couldn't save Saul, as Saul sealed his fate by that action. So unless David decided to have a dalliance with the devil, God assured David that his kingdom would last through the reign of his son, who would build that which turned out to be the temple of God. And since David had his house, his city, and his kingdom, 
David decided to go to work on God's temple. David knew that his son would actually build God's temple, so David decided that he would provide an inheritance that would give his son the resources needed to build God's temple. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 tells us, After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methek Ammah from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. And David began acquiring the resources to build God's temple from the tribute of the Moabites. In his next conquest, David defeated the king of Zobah and took 1,000 chariots and horses from him. David employed 100 horses and chariots in his army and kept 900 of the chariots in the treasure trove that he was building for the construction of the temple. 22,000 Syrians came to the aid of the king of Zobah bearing golden shields. David defeated the Syrian army took the shields and a large quantity of bronze from the Syrians to increase the treasure trove that he was building for the construction of the temple. King Toy, who was at war with the Syrians when David defeated them, brought David a great deal of silver, gold, and bronze as tribute for defeating the Syrians. And when the king of Ammon died, David sent a delegation to Ammon to offer his condolence to the new king of Ammon, but the Ammonites king's counselors erroneously advised the king that David has sent the delegation to spy out the land. The new king of Ammon insulted David's men and sent them back to Israel, so David sent his army to Ammon. The Ammonites hired the Syrians to defend them against David, and the Syrians sent an army of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. David and the Israelite army defeated them as they had defeated the Syrians earlier, and the Syrian commanders decided to not be mercenaries anymore in conflict with Israel because of the strength of David's army. And the spring after David and the army defeated the 47,000 Syrians, David decided to finish his business with the new king of Ammon. But since the Ammonites did not have the protection of the Syrians, David decided that he would not go with the army personally, since the Ammonites without the Syrians were light work. David sent General Joab to command the army while he stayed at home. And at home, David ran into something that he could not defeat as he did the armies of the land surrounding Israel. You may remember that two weeks ago, we discussed the situation between David and the beautiful Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite who was innocently bathing in her own home when David, from the roof of his palace, looked at and was transfixed by her nakedness. And let me reiterate a point from that lesson. Marriage is designed to be monogamous. God's plan is for a man to find one woman to marry and then spend the rest of his life becoming one with her physically and emotionally. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he that made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason 
a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And Jesus says this because two can only become one if no one comes between them. The simple truth of the matter is that if anyone in your life is more emotionally important to you than your spouse, the two of you are not one. The definition of marital oneness is that one's primary human relationship is with their spouse. No one can be emotionally closer than they. And God's laws against adultery tell us that spouses ought not participate in physical enemy, intimacy rather, with anyone other than their spouse. However, at the juncture of David, David's life, which we are discussing, David already has seven wives and some number of concubines, which are women to whom David has sexual access without a marital commitment. David's lifestyle is not conducive to the monogamous marriage to which God calls us, and as a function of that, David finds having a number of women to be a trivial matter until Bathsheba. Now, why does David's adultery with Bathsheba suddenly make his relationship with her important? Second Samuel 11 and 5 informs us, and the woman Bathsheba conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now, on World AIDS Day, which was last Wednesday, I found myself in a conversation with some people that wanted to discuss the reason for the AIDS epidemic. Of course, I went straight to the point and said that the reason for the AIDS epidemic, by and large, are two antisocial behaviors, out-of-wedlock sex and illegal drug use. Now, you can imagine that with the current societal acceptance of out-of-wedlock sex, my answers were not particularly satisfying to the others in the conversation. Unfortunately, for those in the discussion with me, I had the facts on my side. And as they turned the conversation to seeking potential solutions to the problem of AIDS, I once again went straight to the point. Since, I said, the problem is out of wedlock sex and illegal drug use, the only solution to the problem, obviously, is to stop having out of wedlock sex and stop illegal drug use. There can be no other effective solution. Now, as the discussion ensued, various individuals decried my solutions and talked about needle exchange programs and sex education as potential alternative solutions. But I kept bringing them back to the point that any needle exchange program would have to account for 100 percent of the illicit drug transactions to be effective. Thus, in order to be effective, the people exchanging clean needles would have to pass them out with the drugs meaning they would have to be the ones pushing the drugs in the first place. And that sex education doesn't stop AIDS. Most of the people that have contracted AIDS through sexual contact 
knew that AIDS is transmitted sexually, so they knew the risk before they participated in that risky behavior. But knowing the risk neither stopped them from risky behavior nor stopped them from contracting AIDS. And finally, a lady became, frankly, hostile. Well, we're looking for solutions, she replied angrily, not judgment. All you're doing is judging people for immorality, and people need help, not judgment. My friend, I replied, maybe you don't understand that morality is the only solution. If you're looking for solutions so that people can have sex out of wedlock, shoot drugs, and at the same time have the AIDS problem solved and have AIDS go away, good luck. But I doubt that you'll have much. And of course, that only frosted the lady more. However, in the final analysis, the truth is the light. Sexually transmitted diseases of any form are just like the episode in the garden. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as the man and the woman in the garden proved by their experience, there was no alternate solution for the problem caused by eating the forbidden fruit that did not lead to death. God tells us in the A part of Romans 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 and 23 tells us that we are like the mites and sin is like the bait on the trap that God has set. Now God is a little more merciful than are we because when we set a mouse trap, we don't inform the mice that trying to eat the bait from the trap will kill them. But God tells us that the wages of sin is death and warns us to not commit sin. But this particular day, David, who was a man after God's own heart, proved the correctness of Romans 6 and 23. David was a sincere worshiper of God, not only in word, but also in deed. David spent years avoiding the attempts of God's previously anointed king Saul to kill him without retaliating in any way, shape, form, or fashion. David celebrated the return of the physical signs of Israel's covenant with God in such an enthusiastic way that his wife was even embarrassed at his fervor. And then David devoted his kingship to providing the resources to build a house for God. However, all of the good that David did previously was tarnished in one night when he probably should have been in battle with his soldiers rather than on the roof looking over the city. And David went on to prove that the wages of sin is, in fact, death. Why was Bathsheba not a trivial matter as were the rest of David's women? Because David has not only committed adultery, but has created life with another man's wife. David has committed a sin which will result in death. But how could David commit adultery with such impunity? Did Bathsheba's husband send her to the palace? 
Why did he not protest when David called for his wife after a bath in the middle of the night? Why would the king be caught? What would the king be doing calling for his wife in the first place? And Bathsheba was certainly married. Second Samuel 11 and 3 tells us, So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So where is Uriah the Hittite all this time? Second Samuel 11, 6 and 7 records, Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. So Uriah is in the Israelite army. That's why his wife was at home alone. Uriah is one of David's men in David's army serving God. And since David impregnated Uriah's wife while Uriah was unavailable, the best solution that David could develop to solve the pregnancy problem was to bring Uriah home to be with his wife and thus confuse paternity, since there were no DNA tests in the 8th century before Christ. And since Uriah had been at war for some time without access to his wife, David thought that Bathsheba could certainly seduce her husband on his unexpected visit home. But Bathsheba was not able to seduce Uriah because Uriah didn't even go home. Uriah stayed with the soldiers in the garrison guarding David's palace. And when David asked Uriah why he didn't go home, in 2 Samuel 11, uh, 11, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And Uriah, like David, felt the bond of brotherhood with the men in his unit. And while his brothers were in harm's way, Uriah was not going to break the bond even though he had been given unexpected leave by the king. But David was a soldier before he was the king, and he had a soldier's solution for Uriah's reticence to go home. Second Samuel eleven thirteen tells us, Now when David called Uriah, David ate and drank before Uriah, and David made Uriah drunk. And at evening, Uriah went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but Uriah did not go down to his house. So David's second plan to make Uriah go home and have sex with Bathsheba did not work any better than the first. So David went on to plan three. Second Samuel eleven fourteen and 15 tells us, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And David wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. David's third plan worked and Uriah was killed in battle. Despite inflation, recession, and quantitative easing, the wages of sin are still the same. 
somebody has to die behind it. In this case, the first person to die was Uriah. But Uriah was innocent. And not just innocent, but honorable. Uriah did not die because of anything that he did, said, or thought, either while his wife was being impregnated by David or afterward. David had Uriah killed for one reason. David did not want to be convicted of adultery. And David successfully avoided his conviction. Second Samuel 11, 26 and 27 tells us, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband, that Uriah, her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And it appears that David has been successful. He has another wife, and he has another son. And as far as David is concerned, life is good, except for one thing. Second Samuel eleven twenty seven tells us, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that is our problem as well. We have displeased God. We may not have committed adultery and then killed the spouse of the person with whom we did so, but Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We may not have committed the sin of David, but that is because we do not have the resources or the situation of David. But Romans 3 lets us know that we have disobeyed God to the extent that we can, given our situation. And James tells us in James chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle the whole body. But very few of us are perfect. Most of us have done the things that we teach others not to do. But John three sixteen and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this is the crux of Christianity. The purpose of Jesus Christ's advent into the world is salvation. Salvation means that we no longer have to rely on our own goodness or on our own righteousness to be right with God. Salvation means that we do not have to worry about our sins bringing us into the condemnation of God. And salvation means that we are saved from the ultimate penalty that we deserve for our sins. And David is our example. Before David's little trip up to the roof, God assured David that he would not befall the fate of Saul, be rejected, and then be replaced. Second Samuel 7.16 records that God said, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. 
And there was only one contingency unstated, but understood by all that have an allegiance with God. And that contingency, as I have already noted, was that God's assurance of his grace to David was contingent upon David maintaining his relationship with God. Not perfection, not sinlessness, but relationship. So how do you, being a sinner, know whether or not you have a relationship with God? Well, the criminal on the cross exemplifies being a believer. The relevant episode tells us in Luke 23, 39 through 42, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation and we justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now the criminal knew criminals when he saw them and he recognized that Jesus the Christ was not one. The criminal was able to evaluate that which he knew about Jesus Christ and come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ, as he was dying on the cross next to him, was on his way to a kingdom. And John 3.16 says that whoever believes in him, Jesus Christ, should not perish but have everlasting life. The criminal recognized that the dying Jesus Christ was the king. The criminal recognized that Jesus Christ was his king. So the criminal confessed his sin and Jesus Christ's holiness. And Jesus Christ recognized the criminal's sincerity when in Luke 23 and 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So to have a relationship with God, we have to recognize Jesus Christ as our King. Yes, sin is a problem for us. Circumstances and situation may successfully entice us to do the wrong thing, but recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord, which is equivalent to recognizing him as King, is the key to our relationship with him as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul also tells us about Jesus' remedy for our sin, as he says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this gift of God is intended to be that which the presence given during the current Christmas season signify. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son who gave us the gift of eternal life. We give one another gifts to signify that God gave us a gift. As Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38 tells us, now in the six months, 
The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when Mary saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and will bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. This is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ was the gift of God. Jesus Christ was not born physically by the normal activity of man, but by the miraculous gift of God. And Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead physically by the normal activity of man, but by the miraculous gift of God. God's gift to us during this Christmas season is the life of Christ by whose shed blood on Calvary's cross it is possible for us to recover our relationship with God. And Jesus Christ has been empowering we weak sinners to change our way and recover our relationship with God even as he did David as we will continue to study in our next lesson and even as he did the Apostle Paul as he testified of his own at life in Acts 26, 12 through 18, while, I, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goals. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The gift of God is given to us that we may open our eyes, that we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that we may receive forgiveness of our many sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is why we celebrate the birth and the life of Christ. Seeking solutions to the problem of sin that do not include repentance and the forgiveness of sin, but rather seek to perpetuate sin through technology and education while rejecting the word of God is not ultimately effective. But the only effective solution to the problem of sin is throwing ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ, the suffering savior of the world, accepting his sacrifice on Calvary's cross and repenting of our sins to establish our relationship with God, which ultimately will be effective for us. To repent of his sin was the solution for David. And to repent of our sins will be the solution for us if our sin problem is ever to be solved. And the reason that we must continually preach repentance, hear about repentance, and actually repent is that it is so easy for us to allow our sins to beset us so easy for us to become defensive about the evil that we may do, and so easy for us to decide to call wrong right, as did David, and as did my friends with whom I was discussing AIDS. But we can de avoid defensiveness and denial when we sin because repentance is available to us. Jesus Christ came to the earth in the flesh, and made a way through his physical sacrifice on the cross for us to be forgiven when we finally do repent, even as was the criminal. And this Christmas celebration is in remembrance of that gift of repentance. So, so as you wrap your Christmas gifts, say a little prayer that the person being given the gift may remember the reason for the gifts. And on Christmas morning, as you unwrap your Christmas gifts, remember the reason for the gifts yourself. John 3, 16 and 17 tells us of God's gift on that first Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have an everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So let us thank God for the gift of salvation through the life of Jesus Christ. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson that you have given us. And we're asking you, Lord that you would allow this holiday season that we, are, that we are celebrating to be more than just wrapping paper and Christmas trees and Santa Claus and all of the trappings uh, that the secular world puts along with the celebration of the birth of your son. 
And as we enjoy those secular things, help us to remember the real reason for the season that you traveled through 42 generations, uh, came down and got off in a little town that they call Bethlehem to be born of a virgin, to walk among us for 33 and a half years doing nothing but good, and then to sacrifice yourself on the old rugged cross that our sins might be forgiven and that repentance and the forgiveness of sin might be preached even from the place where you gave your life in Jerusalem, even to the place where we are today. So we thank you, Lord, for the gift that you have given us. And we ask you, Lord, that you remember that gift as we're shopping and celebrating gifts from others and for us. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, arising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.